0: What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co creating a pedagogy, a way of learning. Through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Graham Russell. He, he's the founder of Rights Action. Thank you so much for joining us, Graham.
1: Hi, Sylvia. Um, Hi. Good happy morning. Happy New Year, and thanks for having me on.
0: Happy New Year. Now, while the news are having very fun fest of fear-infusing news about the incidents in the White House, which are, you know, very worthy. I, I'd like us to talk a little bit about um, the perhaps continuous story of horror of the Honduran uh, people as a caravan of 7,000 asylum seekers left last, you know, in early in January. So perhaps we can begin there.
1: Well, it it is a good starting point. It's a sad and it's a poignant starting point for any discussion about um, sort of what's going on in Central America and what does that have to do with North America, with Canada and the US. And if anyone's following the news, and it's been a little bit in the mainstream news in Canada and the US, there's yet another caravan of uh, desperate people fleeing Honduras. trying to get to, to, to exile of some sort, some sort of healthy, sane place to live um, in either Mexico or uh, the United States. Any, any mainstream coverage that does um, shine a light on this focuses narrowly sort of on, um, there's thousands of Hondurans fleeing, trying to get into Guatemala. They're trying to march across Guatemala. These are very hard conditions. Um, they're playing con- conditions of uh, violence and poverty. And that's about it. Like, I'm, I'm being a little bit simplistic, but that's that's sort of about it. And there's no discussion of what are uh, the real underlying causes in, that they're playing and what are the causes of the underlying causes and what does that have to do with Canadian and U.S. policies. And this narrow coverage of the caravans almost becomes like sort of caravans or poverty voyeurism, like we're shining a light at a very complex, sad, depressing situation of poor people, but doing it almost in a voyeuristic way that this is not our problem, we're just looking at someone else's problem and not analyzing it on a, on a more proper, deeper level.
0: I was just going to say that, you know, in a a world full of pandemic fear with millions of people dying worldwide, um, a lot of people are focused on, you know, their own house and they think, you know, how can we worry about this? But we don't see how, you know, the repression that... Uh, imposing a coup in Honduras in 2008 has created, you know, a a complete erosion of social systems, and and how those uh, seemingly isolated incidents, you know, are generated from policies right in our home. So perhaps we can. Talk a little bit about the role of imperialism because we often don't use that term, you know, in polite conversations. We don't talk about colonization and imperialism as things that are, you know, worthy of discussion. But I think it's timely to speak about the way our governments, you know, Canadian government, the U.S. government, imperialist policies uh, have generated this level of suffering and make those connections.
1: Yeah. Any discussion about these caravans that are leaving um, Honduras and it's similar arguments can be made about the caravans of people, thousands, tens of thousands leaving Guatemala every year. But just to focus on Honduras, this caravan that's of, of desperate people fleeing their country. Um, the underlying causes go back to the U.S. and Canadian backed military coup in June of 2009 in Honduras. You you you're right to point directly at that. And the caravans have been became news in North America, mainly in the US, but also in Canada in 2018 and 2019. And the coverage was similarly sort of poignant, but not focusing on the role of Canada and the US. And that's just, this is what I was trying to say. This is the same thing that's happening now. There's poignant coverage of the suffering of people fleeing, and no coverage whatsoever about how Canadian and U.S. policies from 2009, from from the coup that we supported in 2009 forward to today, our our public sector government policies, and then the the investor and corporate interests of Canadian and U.S.-based companies and investment firms are directly contributing to, and actually benefiting from the underlying causes of human rights violations, of deep impoverishment, of racism, of corruption, and of government violence and repression, and there is no end in sight in this. For the sake of Honduras, until we start to address the role that the "quote-unquote" international community uh, it has been playing in Honduras from the coup in 2009 forward till today, without getting back, going back further in history, and so. The, the coup, this US Canadian backed coup, is the starting point for any honest discussion about what all the ills that the people of, of Honduras are, are, are facing today.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the, the significance of having mining companies' interests dictate the policies the Canadians pursue in countries such as Honduras. And what are some of the impacts that this has generated?
1: I will. The there is a direct link between the coup in Honduras and mining, Canadian and even U.S. mining interests. There's a direct coup link between the coup in in Guatemala in 1954 and Canadian mining interests. But to, to cast the discussion farther, there's there's a direct coup between these regime change policies uh, that are in Latin America, they're always sort of uh, spearheaded by the United States and then Canada almost invariably supports them directly or indirectly. There's direct links between the regime change policies that overthrow governments that we don't like and put in place governments we do like, and a wide range of North American economic and investor interests in the sectors of mining, in the sectors of the construction of hydroelectric dams, in the sectors of the production of bananas and pineapples for export, in the sectors of African, the production of African palm and sugar cane for export, in the sectors of tourism and in the maquiladora sweatshop sectors of the economy. There's direct links between why the US and Canadian governments choose to support certain right-wing governments that promote global businesses or overthrow governments we don't like to bring into power, help bring into power governments we do like, i.e. governments and regimes that favor uh, the economic interests of uh, uh, global corporations and investors, most of which in Latin America are based in North America. And so that the story about mining is really no different than the story about where do our bananas come from and how did they get here? Where do our pineapples come from and how do they get here? Sugarcane, African palm, uh, etc.
0: You know, when, when I was a kid um, growing up in El Salvador under the war, um, it became a daily occurrence of horror you know you just you become adaptive to your environment and in many ways i think the experience of hondurans living in caravans is an adaptive measure to oppression and repression, this ability to join forces with others to f- try to create safety. We used to say in El Salvador, you can have the security you can afford. And it usually meant we were resigned to face the fact that we could die that day just by going outside our homes. And so can we talk about... Uh, the ways then that this policies not only dehumanize you know our our own ability to empathize to support people's right to freedom right to be you know just this very novel idea. The being means being without aggression, facing aggression on a daily basis. You know, this ability to become, to be able to use your your creativity and your skills, and mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> flourish. Um, so yep. let's talk about uh, what significance this has on our own ability to see that injustice when this happens in our own right. in our own backyard
1: like just for the sake of the discussion, very interesting, I find this very interesting. The, the, the most dehumanizing agent or the most desensitizing agent in this discussion is the role of the media and is the role of how these issues are presented to the general public by our politicians and media or in the cases where the media doesn't really address it at all or, or, or our politicians in Canada and the US ignore it. What I'm getting at is that take the the caravans, for example, because our media only gives us snapshots of these, and they sometimes refer to them as hordes of people or a wave of people or a flood of people trying to get north. They They present them in a snapshot vision of large numbers of people in terrible conditions trying to do something almost impossible, i.e., get through military roadblocks to to walk north to, in conditions of poverty to the US knowing that they won't get in the the desensitizing the dehumanizing part is the endless repetition of this one image that's what's going on there and isn't that too bad and no connection to how what are the underlying causes of all this and how we are part of this problem and the reason it's desensitizing is because when uh, people in Canada or the U.S. read these news, news reports, A, they'll either ignore them altogether, or B, they'll read them, you know, and get moved in their hearts. But there's, but then we throw up our hands and go, what can I do about it? That's all those people over there ever do. They hurt one another, they, they're violent, they're impoverished and corrupt, and then they flee. And that's the desensitizing part because it's disconnecting us Canada, and the U.S., to what's going on there. And if the media and our politicians did their jobs rightly, then there would be much more indignation in Canada and the U.S. amongst the general public, because the general public would be indignant that we have something to do with this, that Canadian and U.S. government policies have a lot to do with it, that our companies and investors have a lot to do with it. And therefore, there's something that I, the Canadian uh, news consumer, I, the American news consumer, can do about it because I I do not, I, I won't stand for this. I will not stand for this that my government, my companies, my investors are doing this and helping create these conditions elsewhere. So that the, the desensitizing and the dehumanizing part of it is the endless repetition of the suffering of others and the complete disconnection to how we're all in this together and how our policies and actions create and recreate the suffering of others.
0: I love that you bring down to the connection to how we, the things that we consume, the ways that we... At consume media, the ways that we consume goods, you know, whether we're buying gold without thinking, where, where did the gold come from? You know, how was it mine? Yeah. Were the miners paid reasonable wages? Was the water contaminated? Do they have left any clean water to drink in the area where the gold was extracted? Um, those kinds of questions are questions that we often ignore. So, as as you started uh rise action your um foundation looks not just to the superficial root causes of poverty which you know many people say well they are living in a poor country so they're poor people but the countries are rich you know the countries are rich with gold the countries are rich with minerals countries like venezuela are rich with oil uh the people are poor because of the Policies put in place, the minimum wage that's non existent in some areas. The way the name of Manuel Zelaya will be, you know, alien to most people. Most Hondurans will remember as the year where the The government tried to impose a small increase, you know, in their salary and and the government was brought down. So uh, those connections are essential, not just for our own understanding that poverty is not a natural state of being, that this, you know, poverty that kills people faster than a coronavirus uh, you know it's it's actually yeah. created by policies of what people should earn, how much investment uh should generate from their exploitation of their minds and um and how many uh juridical tools uh the investment elites have at their disposal that dehumanize and turn people mm-hmm. into disposable um you know means to their capital so how do you um keep yourself connected um yeah. how do you feel you, how do you keep sensitized to the suffering to the pain so that you don't see it as just another day of poor people trying to leave their corrupt places
1: um i guess it's a two-part answer and one is i've worked in central america mainly honduras and guatemala but also Salvador that you mentioned, Nicaragua, for better over three decades. And I, I have many friends there, many friends who are living and suffering in these very conditions. And so I can never be de- un- insensitive about it when these are people I know, and they're people like my neighbors here at home. They're just honest, decent people trying to have decent, simple lives. And they are being, they're being forced to suffer um, through very, very brutal, harsh uh, conditions of violence, impoverishment, racism, impunity, and corruption. If these are people I know, and I do, then I'm not insensitive to that. But the other part of the answer is also that I also understand that these are not their problems, that these are our problems, that these are in part my problems by definition. And I think that is the greatest challenge. that's one of the greatest challenges in the line of work I do is to keep chipping away at sort of redefining what are the underlying causes um what are the underlying local to national to global causes of so many of the ills that people face around the world including in places like guatemala and honduras it's not to to redefine what is suffering oh that person's in poverty that looks awful that's terrible we all most of us can sort of agree on that it's redefining what are the underlying causes local to national to global causes and then taking action chipping away relentless action week after week year after year decade after decade well a hold accountable and b transform what are the local to national to global underlying causes and that that work began long before i was born and it will continue long after i've died
0: it's such a Touching uh, statement, you know. When I hear you say that world began before I was born, because uh, to me the vision of a world with justice for all people is a dream that is bigger than all of us. And when you have a dream that is bigger than you, um, you have very good reasons to get up in the morning and uh, and get to work and do your part. Um, So how do we? Create then in in ourselves, and how do you cultivate that sense of resilience when you're faced with aggression? You know, uh, around you here in Canada, we see the treatment of Indigenous people. We see how pipelines displace people. How mining companies are polluting water and lakes. And um, how do you keep yourself energized and committed to? To create a world where that is not natural way of doing business. That is not an inescapable fate in the name of capital progress.
1: Just in a nutshell, um, maintaining and nurturing positive human relations and maintaining and nurturing positive actions um, to respond to all this stuff. There's a quote out there, and I'm going to misquote the quote. I don't even know who said it first, but that that action is the mother of of hope. And as opposed to just having good hope or, or thinking your way into being hopeful about something, action is the way that one's hopeful. Now, that's easier said than done for someone like me than it is for someone who's suffering the harms on a daily basis on a lifelong basis, on an intergenerational basis. And that is a big gap between my reality and the reality of many people that I work with, know, am friends with, and support. But it's still true that on a day-to-day basis, because that's where we all live day-to-day, action, do good work, do good actions. The, The caravans, just to bring it right back to that discussion, this is the positive thing that those thousands and tens of thousands of hondurans can do in their life they're not just accepting of their imposed exploitation and poverty they're not just accepting of uh, being governed and ruled by a military-backed drug trafficking regime in honduras that's fully supported by canada and the us they're choosing to act now different hondurans are choosing to act in different ways but those thousands of people fleeing the country, and they'll be fleeing again tomorrow and next week and next month, they are choosing to act. Their hope in life derives from the choices they're making to act upon their reality. And thus, me in a life living in Toronto in a, you know, in a my little micro world is one of sort of privilege and comfort, relatively speaking, compared to that of the Hondurans. Um, my hope comes from the actions I get to do every day week in week out with good people the relationships I've developed with good people in Canada the US and in Central America
0: that's beautiful um, how can people support your work how can people um, participate
1: in I think that the best thing for anyone is just start following us on our uh, on Facebook on Twitter Instagram. Or- Got some new uh, younger people working with me now so social media side of our work is growing and improving or our, probably the best thing is the our email list we send out regular information through these um, email news blasts it's free you just sign up and you start receiving the information once you start receiving the information on a regular basis the reader the whoever it is will start to receive a lot of sort of potential action lists and links to other groups and and links to places they can donate and links to things they can do here at home in Canada. Um, It's sort of a a very proactive sort of um, information. When we send out information, we try and make it proactive. So it's not just reporting on the news, but telling people what they can do. But the best thing is to start following the information regularly and then get used to and aware of our work and our perspective on our work and then go from there.
0: I always say the community is immunity. So give our, uh, yes, give our audience your, your, um, informa- your link and uh, your website yes. so they can follow you and be part of a greater community.
1: Um, rightsaction.org. And if you go to the website, there'll be a spot where you can subscribe to our email news blasts, and you'll find information about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But it's rightsaction.org.
0: Thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much for the beautiful ways that you remind us of our responsibility to co-create with life, to be on the side of life, you
1: know. And Thank you very much, Sylvia.
0: Take care. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylviarichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.